Father, we pray that you would help us now. Thank you that you're a good father, that you desire to speak to us as your people. Jesus, we thank you that you've came, that you've come into the world, that you lived, you died, you rose from the dead to give us a new life, a new power to live differently in the world. Spirit, we pray that you would uh, bring the truth of who you are and, um, and the life that you've called us to live, that you would just pour that generously out on us today. And Holy Spirit, would you do miraculously what we cannot do in our own strength to bring about your fruit, the character of Christ in our lives. God, would you just speak to us now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So our text, again, uh, as it is uh, during this series on the fruit of the Spirit is Galatians 5. So I wanna encourage you, Galatians 5, go all the way kind of to the right, a couple books in there. Um, you'll see Galatians 5, 22, really simple passage. Um, so hear these words again. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there's no law. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so we are in this series on the fruit of the Spirit looking at what it looks like to be a counterculture uh, in a world that often embodies the opposite of these traits. And so we're contrasting these different aspects of the fruit, which again are all kind of pieces of what it means to love. These are all descriptors, specific descriptors, descriptors that unpack a life of love that the Spirit produces in disciples of Jesus gradually over uh, the course of our lives as we come to trust Him and know Him and reflect Him in the world. And so today I want to talk about kindness in a culture of harshness. Kindness in a culture of harshness. Now, if, if you were to ask uh, people in your office, maybe over Zoom right now, but if you, just in normal times, were to come into where the coffee is in the morning, and you were to conduct a survey and say, what, what do you think of Christians to people who are not followers of Jesus? How many of you think your coworkers would be like, you know what? Christians are the kindest people. They are so kind. I've never met a kinder group of people than the church. Okay, maybe you work in a Christian nonprofit and people might say that. But I doubt that would be the response for most of your coworkers, for most of your neighbors. We live in a, in a culture, a cultural moment, characterized by harshness. The word harshness, if you look it up in the dictionary, as you would suspect, it means unpleasantly rough, jarring to the senses, cruel and severe. Now, it's not surprising to me that in an increasingly secular age, what, that, that we would live in a time of harshness and cruelty. What is surprising to me is how many churches and how many Christians have assumed a posture of harshness and cruelty in their own lives, in their own discourse, in their social media presence. If, if the last year has revealed anything about the church, it's how unkind we can be, how harsh we can be. Let's just talk about in the church with one another, with our own parents, with our own children, with our neighbors, with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. I follow lots of uh, researchers and, and they research and measure kind of attitudes towards the church from non-Christians. And one of the words that's popped up the more frequently over the last five years than it has in decades of surveys when it comes to non-Christians' perspectives or the formerly uh, kind of churched, the so-called nuns who've left the church and don't affiliate with Christianity anymore, 
The word that continues to pop up in uh, searches more now than ever is this word cruel. Christians are cruel. Christians are viewed by a larger society as a people marked by cruelty. They're combative. They're aggressive. They're defensive. They're sarcastic. They're mocking and contemptuous. They're harsh. A book that is read by a political scientist named Ryan Burge says that actually one of the primary contributing factors to the rise of, of the nuns, which are the largest like religious demographic, they're still kind of a religious demographic, they just don't identify as Christian uh, anymore. One of the primary contributing factors to the rise of nuns, which are as big as evangelical Christians and Catholics and, and quickly rising, um, is, is one, one of the primary contributing factors is, is not that... Um, they're leaving the church because they don't like what we believe. But they're leaving the church because they don't think the church actually believes and lives what it says they believe and live. Especially younger people. 40% of millennials identify as nuns. David French, a conservative uh, author and um, religious freedom attorney, he says this about this rise in cruelty. Um, and, and really the kind of the coming divide in the church. He says, in my view, the truly important emerging divisions in the evangelical church aren't just theological or ideological. They're also dispositional and temperamental. In evaluating the reality of the last five years, what has been more salient and relevant to the daily lives of so many American Christians, the fact of disagreement with brothers and sisters or the manner of disagreement between brothers and sisters. There's a tremendous yawning difference between humble and kind members of competing evangelical factions and cruel and self-righteous gladiators in the public square. And make no mistake, there's no single church faction or ideological side that has a monopoly on cruelty. The spirit of the age declares that if you get the big things correct, then cruelty and self-righteousness and the pursuit of those goals are either minor flaws, i.e. bad manners, or outright virtues. After all, didn't Jesus drive the money changers from the temple with a whip? But it's past time to acknowledge that we're often turning our priorities upside down. It's past time to acknowledge that cruelty is its own form of apostasy. Cruelty is disobedience. He's also an ordained elder. Sometimes the world rejects Christians because it rejects Christ. Sometimes, however, the world rejects Christians because Christians are cruel. In that case, alienation isn't persecution. It represents righteous judgment for our own political sin. While I understand um, in a rapidly secularizing landscape, many Christians feel weak. Many Christians feel under attack. I think the roots of harshness is this sense of growing weakness. It's a sense of powerlessness, like something slipping away from Christians. And, and there is, there is an assault. There, there are things that are happening that are real, like tangible, concrete things that are happening in our lives. And we feel weak, we feel disoriented, we feel angry, we feel powerless. And yet, Paul would say to us, Jesus would say to us, the Spirit wants to say to us, there is no place for harshness or cruelty in the church of Jesus Christ. We are a people who have received unimaginable kindness from God and mercy from God and gentleness, as we'll see, from God. There is no place in the church for the kind of discourse, the kind of presence that is 
raging, that is bitter, that is cruel, that is unkind. That's exactly what Paul's addressing in Galatians 5. He says, if you bite and devour one another, watch out, or you will be consumed by one another. Similar to what Jesus said, if you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. Now, the works of the flesh are obvious. And this is an interesting list here in Galatians chapter 5. Because we tend, as, as, as the church, I've noticed, at least churches I've grown up in, to focus on some of these at the exclusion of the others. So listen to this list. What are the works of the, the flesh, life apart from God? Hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy. He goes on to talk about drunkenness and he goes on to talk about sexual morality. And those are the ones, at least in my experience, that get called out the most. Those are the ones that'll get you in trouble the fastest in the church is addiction and sexual immorality. We talk a lot about that. But when was the last time you ever heard somebody get in trouble in the church for not being kind, for stirring up rivalry and dissension and hatred and jealousy and for being known for outbursts of anger and selfish ambition? We don't talk about that a whole lot. So what does it look like for us to be a culture of kindness? I mean, I, I believe that this word is one of the most important words for the church coming out of the season we've come out of, looking at the future of the church. We have an opportunity. We have an amazing opportunity to be light in darkness. And one of the areas of darkness that I see the most in the church that we've contributed to in the larger world is our harshness and our cruelty and our unkindness. What is kindness? What does it mean to be kind? Kindness has a bad rap. Kindness is undervalued. I, like if I just asked you, what do you think of kindness? Something would pop into your head and probably not exactly what Paul means by kindness. The word kindness is, uh, is really tran the translation into the English of two primary words. The Hebrew word hesed and the Greek word krestos. The Hebrew word hesed uh, in the Old Testament is often translated steadfast love. The covenant love of God, kindness, loving kindness, if you grew up in a church that used the King James Version, mercy, devotion, goodness. These are all clusters in the Hebrew of that word hesed. Uh, uh, Philip Kinnison, a New Testament author, uh, writes this. He says, indeed, so closely connected are God's kindness and God's steadfast love that they are often treated as synonymous. Kindness is a particular manifestation of love. So what does it look like to actually love is to be kind, and to be kind is to love. The word krestos, similar in the New Testament, um, is translated kind, or mild, or easy, or helpful. How about that? How about Christians, we just be helpful? <laughs> That'd be a revolution. I love uh, Christopher Wright's definition. He says, kindness describes people who habitually behave in a way that blesses and benefits others because that is their character. It flows out of who we are, kind souls, kind hearts. The spirit of God in us as we're trusting by faith in Jesus. We become the kind of people who habitually, not occasionally, I don't know about you, but like I am not habitually kind. I am occasionally kind, mostly when it serves my own interest. But he says, habitually, the kind of person that blesses and benefits, there's this idea of generosity. Kindness is almost synonymous in the Bible 
with generosity. It's not feeling kind feelings. It's not thinking kind things. It's doing kind things to those who have practical needs that need to be met. Let me stick something in your mind that was super sticky for me this week as I was studying. Um, if, If I were to just kind of like describe a vision for kindness and define it really simply, um, Barry Corey, who is the president of Biola University, wrote a book called Love Kindness. And he says, kindness is really um, kind of a posture that, that embodies this idea of firm centers and soft edges. Let me, let me just read this quote. I thought it was so, so helpful when we're thinking about what kindness is and what kindness is not. Because we clearly know that kindness is not aggression. It's not that kind of rough harshness that characterizes so much of our uh, life sometimes. But he also says it's not niceness either. You never see God calling himself nice. You never see Jesus calling himself nice. It's something different. It's a third way. Here's what he says. Whereas aggression, think about like a really dogmatic, aggressive person. Aggression has a firm center, lots of convictions, right? Like really convinced that theirs is the right way to do everything. And it has hard edges, right? Like no soft edges. Soft edges is for the compromisers, right? He says, whereas aggression has a firm center and hard edges, niceness has soft edges and a spongy center. Niceness may be pleasant, but it lacks conviction. It has no soul. Niceness trims its sails to prevailing cultural winds and wanders aimlessly, standing for nothing and thereby falling for everything. Rather than the harshness of firm centers and hard edges, And rather than the weakness of spongy centers and soft edges, why don't we start with kindness? Kindness is the way of firm centers and soft edges. Not afraid to say, this is who I am. This is what I believe. This is true. But the way in which I engage those around me has a softness about it. It has a kindness. It has, as we'll see in a few weeks, a gentleness that marks our discourse and our engagement in the world. It's not afraid to say, this is who I am, but it doesn't feel the need to power up and, and lash out at others. But it's also not just like, oh, well, I want to be nice. So here's what I want us to see. When it comes to kindness, again, as we've seen with all of the fruit of the Spirit, remember, all, every aspect of the fruit of the Spirit is a reflection of the character of God. And so as the character of God gets placed in us by the Holy Spirit, we begin to live that out in the world, in our relationships with other people. So kindness is something that we don't produce on our own. You can't make yourself be kind. Try it for like a week. I mean, you'll be done after a couple of hours. Try, just try to be kinder and, and like do an audit of your life and see how often you're kind versus how often you're harsh. You may not be harsh to people's faces, but like behind their backs, in your own heart, you're harsh on people. I'm harsh on people. So we need to see that this is something that comes from God. And it's counterintuitive to how we think about God. The thing that I want you to see more than anything and hear more than anything today is God is kind. So we must be kind. Since God is kind and God's life has been placed in us by the Holy Spirit, we're invited to embody kindness. Now, it's interesting because when a lot of people think of God, the last thing they think of is kind. They think cruel, vindictive, harsh. That's not what we see in the Bible. Exodus 34, 6, we read this verse last week. Moses says to God, reveal to me, show me your glory. After they've been delivered out of the harshness 
of slavery. Moses speaks to the Israelites after God shows up at the burning bush, right? Exodus chapter three, and God says, go speak to your brothers and sisters. Tell them that I am who I am is about to deliver them from slavery. And Moses goes and shares this message. And what's so interesting there is that it says the people could not hear him. They could not understand him. They would not receive his message because of the harsh slavery, the harsh treatment they had received. They had spirits that were crushed. That's what harshness does. It crushes our spirits. And God shows up as a God who reveals himself in kindness. The very first thing God says about himself in the entire Bible, about his character, about who he is in his heart, Yahweh, Yahweh, is a compassionate and gracious God. Slow to anger. We looked at that last week. Patient and rich in faithful love and truth. That word faithful love is the word hesed that could be translated kindness. Rich in kindness, not stingy in kindness, not a little bit of kindness, abundant, overflowing in kindness towards the world. Even in the Old Testament, when we do see people turn away from God, even when there is judgment, God's slow to anger, but he eventually gets there, right? If you continue to test him, he does get angry at anything that defaces his love for flourishing in the world. But even still, the book of Hosea, verse 11, says that God is still kind. His heart is a father's heart to be kind to his children. When Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up. I mean, think, look at this kindness. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know I had healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and I fed them out of my own hand. This is the kindness of God. Even in our rebellion, even when we turn away from God, even when we spit in God's face and we shake our fists at him and say, I'm gonna do it my own way, God says, I lead you with cords of kindness. It is my kindness that creates room for you to turn back to me. And that's why in 1 Chronicles, 1 Chronicles 16, 34, they rejoice in God's kindness. It's one of the, the refrains we hear the most in the book of Psalms. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His kindness endures forever. You can't be harsh enough to God for his kindness to stop pursuing you. And that's why it's so amazing and spectacular when we see Jesus come in the flesh in the New Testament. Jesus, you could say, is God's kindness in the flesh. That's actually how Paul describes Jesus when he shows up in the world. Titus chapter three, verse four. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Jesus coming to earth, taking on human flesh, teaching and healing and preaching and doing all that he did, dying on the cross, rising from the dead, is the ultimate pattern of kindness. I mean, think about how kind Jesus was in his ministry. I was just reading this week, if you're following along in our church rule of life, the book of Luke reveals the compassion and the kindness of Jesus. 
This, this week, there was the story about the, the crowds, the 5,000 that were gathered around Jesus, and the disciples are tired, and they're done with a long day of ministry. And they're like, get these people away from us, and let's go away to a quiet place. And what does Jesus do? He says, no, you feed them something. And he stays, and he multiplies loaves. At the end of the day, when he's exhausted, he makes sure that their physical needs are met, an act of kindness. Jesus, when his disciples wanted to push the children away because he had to be busy, he had to be productive, he had to get things done, and children are in the way, they're a nuisance. We don't have to, Jesus doesn't have time for you, the disciples says. What does Jesus say? Hey, let the little children come to me. And he bends down and he scoops them up into his arms and he says, such is the kingdom of God. Jesus touched lepers, right? The people that nobody else would touch. Think about being a leper, an outcast of society. When you were a leper, people had to walk by and say, cover their faces, not look at you and say, unclean, unclean, unclean. They pass by on the other side of the road. If you're a leper, you probably haven't been touched in decades. And one of the first thing that Jesus does is he touches lepers. These are my people, God says. He befriends tax collectors, prostitutes, sinners. He dines with his enemies. He dines with those who are outcasts in society. Even the Pharisees, whom Jesus sharply critiqued, he gathered together with a meal for them, for, for a meal with them. He looks at blind Bartimaeus, and one of my favorite expressions of kindness, he says, what do you want me to do for you? What, a, what, a, what an amazing question from God. What can I do for you? How can I serve you? He says, I want to I be healed. I want to see. And Jesus says, done. And he heals him. He asked that question so many times in the Gospels. What can I do for you? What do you want from me? I mean, that, that's, 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 those are questions that a kind person asks. And one of the best passages, I think, in the New Testament here on Jesus' kindness, describing his ministry, Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and burden. Are you, are you tired? Are you exhausted with COVID, all that you've experienced? Are you anxious? Are you fearful? Are you feeling unkind? Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. All of you, take up my yoke and learn from me because I am gentle and lowly or gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for yourselves. And then here's the kindness. For my yoke is kind or easy and my burden is light. To come to Jesus is to experience kindness not just to know about it, but to actually experience God's kindness through Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, again, I want to go back to something that we said last week because I think it's important we don't miss this. Why is God kind? Why is God patient? There's a purpose to God's kindness. See, patience, I believe patience and kindness go together in the purpose of God to lead towards growth and change. Patience, we said last week, creates space and time for people to grow and for them to repent, to turn around, to change, to be transformed. But it's not enough just to create space. Patience slows things down. But then the question is, once things are slowed down, what are you actually going to do in that space? See, kindness, I believe, is kind of like a backhoe. It fills that space with practical deeds of love. 
So patience creates the space. Kindness fills the space with the felt presence of God's love and mercy. The Bible says that leads us to repentance. That's why you always see pairing in the New Testament of kindness and patience working together. 1 Corinthians 13, usually we read it at weddings. Love is patient, love is kind. Paul says in Romans 2, do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience? Not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. See, when we respond to one another with harshness, what, what, what happens? It escalates violence. It escalates retaliation. There's never been a time when you were fighting with somebody, they got up in your face, and they spoke harshly to you, or they pushed you, or they gave you that look that you know like triggers you, and you're like, oh man, you know what? I just want to change my mind right now. That's never happened. What it does is it makes you want to come back and escalate. I've got four kids, right? There's a daily habit of escalation in our home. Somebody says one thing, right? And then somebody else is like, you know, somebody throws a cotton ball at their brother. And all of a sudden somebody's got a brick and they're just launching the brick right in somebody's face. I mean, not just metaphorically, you know what I'm saying? Some, sometimes literally. It's that kindness that leads to repentance. It's kindness that leads to change. When somebody's repeatedly kind to you, the Bible says it's like, it's like you know, throwing a, a, just a bunch of burning coals in their lap. One of my favorite stories of uh, kindness and change is by now Christian author Rosaria Butterfield. Uh, she talks about this in her book um, on, conversion, on her conversion experience. It's a, kind of an autobiography. She was a committed lesbian, and she did not like Christians. And in her memoir about her journey to becoming a committed Christian, she talks about how her impression of evangelical Christians was that they were judgmental, scornful, poor thinkers, afraid of diversity. After she published a critique of an evangelical group in her local newspaper, she received all of this hate mail from Christians. How dare you? You're a terrible person. You're going to hell. I mean, all of these terrible things. Placing an empty box in each corner of her desk, she sorted hate mail into one and fan mail into the other. There wasn't a whole lot in the fan mail. But one letter came through. She received a two-page response from a local pastor in her community. Here's what she said. It was a kind and inquiring letter. It had a warmth and civility to it in addition to its probing questions. She couldn't figure out which box to put the letter in, so it sat in her desk for seven days. It was the kindest letter of opposition that I had ever received. Its tone demonstrated that the writer wasn't against me. Eventually, she contacted the pastor, became friends with him and his wife, and she said this, they talked with me in a way that didn't make me feel erased. And it was their kind friendship that actually led me to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about uh, her journey, you can read that book. One of the best books on hospitality she's now written called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And it's a book on hospitality and the power for kind hospitality to transform our world. So how do we cultivate this kindness in our lives? What does it look like for us to begin to embody this more and more? Right? Because this should be what we want as followers of Jesus. We should want to, to lean into kindness, to become kind as God himself was kind. Not nice, not aggressive, kind as God himself is kind toward us in Christ Jesus. 
Proverbs 21, 21 says this, whoever pursues righteousness and kindness will find life, will find righteousness, so that word can be translated justice, will find honor. Micah 6, 8, a well-known passage for those of us involved in the work of justice, says a similar thing. Uh, what, what is it God expects of us? What does God require of us as his children? And here's what Micah says, mankind, he has told you what is good and what, is the, what it is the Lord requires of you. To act justly, to love, and the word here is hesed, kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. You will not survive the work of justice in the world if you don't learn to love kindness. And if you don't love kindness, you can never do justice really truly in the world. In the way that God envisions that happening. It's said of the early church, the early church fathers, that... um, Kindness and, and, and the word Christos is very closely related to the word Christos for Christ. And it's said in the early church that in the surrounding Roman Empire, people would often confuse Christos with Christos, and they actually had a name for the Christians in the early Roman Empire as they were transforming society. It was just simply this they were the kind ones. They were the kind ones. What a compelling vision for the church to be the kind ones. Not the argumentative ones, not the defensive ones, not the bombastic ones, not the dogmatic ones, the kind ones. And I know immediately as we hear that, some of us go, oh, but kindness feels weak. Kindness is for sissies. Kindness is for people who, you know, they, 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 it doesn't work in the real world. I beg to differ, right? I think Jesus would beg to differ. Remember, we serve a Savior who died on the cross for his enemies. He stretched out his arms in an act of kindness and said, this is the way that the world will be changed. Not through powering up, not through violence, not through retaliation. It is laying down our lives for the good of others. It's not weak. It's actually, I would argue, the most strength that a person has is in kindness. Kindness requires supernatural strength. And if you think about all of the movements in the world that have really transformed society, they've all been birthed out of kindness, not violence and not harshness. Three practical things. First, I think in order to become kind, we must have our image of God healed. We must have our image of God healed. This comes from Brennan Manning, who was uh, an addict Uh, who struggled in his relationship with Jesus. And one of the primary struggles he said I had as a young man, even as a Christian, as a doubter, as a skeptic, is I just had the wrong image of God burned into my imagination. I thought of God as cruel, sadistic, unkind, unloving, harsh. So for for us, we have to do this work of having our image of God healed. When you think of God and who he is, like you've you've been raised in churches, maybe, who present God as harsh, who present God as on our side, as violent against these enemies that we have in the world. But that's not who God is. He's kind. Ephesians 2 says, in the coming ages, he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness in Christ Jesus. For all eternity, God will be lavishing kindness on us as his children. Ephesians 4 Paul says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you. You will never become kind if you don't experience the kindness of God yourself. If you can't look at the Father and say, he's been so kind to me, how could I help doing anything else other than being kind to others? 
So I want to encourage you this week to do a little reflection on your image of God. What comes to mind? What I hear from a lot of people in counseling and and, and reading about Christians generally is when people think of God, they think of God as either disappointed in them or angry with them. That will not lead you to live a life of kindness. If your baseline image of God is that he is ashamed of you or he is angry with you all the time, bitter towards you. So I want you to reflect on your image of God. What does God's kindness look like to you? Look at all the ways, remember all the ways God has been kind to you in Christ Jesus. And let that be the fuel. Let that be the motivation for how you then interact with other people. See if you can be unkind after doing that work of reflection. You just can't read about God's character and his nature and act any other way. It'll be hard-pressed to find verses on that. Second thing, sowing kindness to those closest to us. One of the ways that we need to grow, I think, as a church is in sowing into, in our closest relationships, kindness. Like, I see the church is like an incubator for kindness. It's the place where we learn kindness. And it's a place where I think many of us have learned unkindness. It's a place where many of us have learned harshness. Is in our families of origin and in our church families of origin. So we need to be sowing kindness in our closest relationships. Paul goes on to write in Galatians 6 about sowing and reaping. What you sow, you're going to reap. What many of us are reaping now as 20 and 30 and 50 and 70-year-olds is the result of seeds that were sown into our hearts as children, seeds that were sown into our heart as adolescents, as young adults. He says, we must not get tired of doing good. Let's, let's sow to the Spirit, he says. Don't get tired of doing good, for we will reap at the proper time if we don't lose heart, if we don't give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, we must work for the good of all. Get this, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. I have found that it's easier sometimes for me to be kind to everybody but my own family. Everybody but my own parents. Everybody but my own sister. Everybody but my own church, my community. He says, start with the household faith. Start with other Christians whom you have more in common with than you have in common anything else with anybody else in the world. If you want to break the cycle of escalating harshness and bitterness and violence, it starts in your home. It starts with your family. It starts with your roommates. It starts with us as a church. And we need to do some reflection on how we've learned unkindness in the church. And I want to encourage you to dig into that. Do some reflection on your family of origin. Do some reflection on your church family of origin. What is it that triggers cruelty in you? What is it that triggers harshness in you? Where did you learn that? You learned that somewhere along the way. Now, I know we're sinners, and I know that we have that in us as well, but we also learn specific ways to be unkind. When are you tempted to withhold kindness? Who taught you to be kind? Who were you taught to be kind to or harsh to? Who are the right people to be kind to and the wrong people to be kind to? This starts kindness in our, in our families. The, the Bible, Paul talks about this all over the place. Be angry and do not sin, Paul says. Not wrong to be angry, don't sin, he says. Don't let the sun go down in your anger. Don't give the devil an opportunity. No foul language is to come from your mouth. So be kind in your speech, Paul says, but only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. Husbands, Paul says, 
Love your wives. Don't be bitter towards them. There is a temptation for men to take out anger and to be harsh towards their wives, to provoke them, to be angry, to use their physical presence, their male power in ways that threaten and use harsh tone, harsh body language, harsh hands, harsh words. Paul says, don't do that. And if you hear your wife saying that you are doing it, stop acting like you're not and stop blaming her for being so sensitive. Paul says, no, that's, that's on you men to be kind. Women, to the women, he says, each one of you is to love his wife as his husband and the wife is to respect her husband. Don't provoke your husband to harshness by your unkindness, by your disrespect, right? It's a dance. To fathers, he says, don't exasperate your children. Don't provoke them to bitterness so they won't become discouraged, so they won't lose heart. It's so easy in our families just to be harsh with each other. And man, in COVID, we've been trapped together, like, you know, in this jungle for like a year. And I get it. We're tired. We're exhausted. It's just easy to escalate. It's easy to be harsh. There's some repair work that needs to be done in our families after the year that we've lived, the trauma that we've experienced. John Gottman, just like simple things, but like John Gottman is one of the leading researchers um, for 40 years. He's, he's looked at couples. And it's really interesting to see here a non-Christian social scientist, psychologist, looking at the data. And he asked this question, what is the difference between what he calls those who are masters of marriage and those who are disasters in their marriage? And he says, the number one factor that I've noticed after 40 years that marked lasting marriages, get this, kindness, generosity. That is the number one difference between those whose marriages last and those who don't last or if they do last, they're miserable, is kindness and generosity. The number one factor that tore people apart, get this, contempt. I feel like my partner has contempt towards me. I feel like they're hostile towards me. I feel like they criticize me all the time. And so he says, like, there's simple things that we can do in our marriages to embody kindness. He, one, of the, one of the quick little things he talks about is this simple act every day of making and receiving bids with each other, right? Like your spouse says, hey, they're looking at something or whatever, and they're like, hey, would you look at this? That's a bid. He calls that a bid, like an invitation to be present with me and be kind with me and share in this joy. And he said, you'd be amazed how many couples, what he called these love labs, he'd do these love labs on retreats, how many couples where a bid was made and the bid went unreturned. And over time, that creates distance. He says, you can tell a lot about the intimacy and the kindness of a marriage by how they give and receive bids with one another. So it's as simple as in that moment, Will I turn towards my spouse and reciprocate kindness, or will I turn away from my spouse and show contempt? I mean, thousands of those opportunities we have with our spouses every day. Instead of looking at all the negatives, to look at the positives and say, how can I observe and call out what's good and beautiful right here? Instead of just always noticing what's negative and critical. And again, we learn these things in our families, and they're second nature to us, and they come out in the midst of our marriages. They didn't just pop up because you have the spouse. They popped up because they, it was already in your heart. And so he says, do small acts of kindness often. And that could apply with our kids. That could apply with our grandchildren, with our grandparents, with our siblings, in the church. Sow seeds of kindness. What are you sowing in your marriage? 
What you are sowing right now, you will reap 10 years down the road, 15 years down the road, 30 years down the road. Are you sowing into the spirit and kindness? Are you sowing seeds of harshness? And then quickly, last thing, the crucible for kindness is how we treat each other. And I wish we had time here, but we don't. We're out of time. So the crucible for kindness is how I would say we treat the other. And I think this is so important for us right now. We'll come back to this again in gentleness in a few weeks. But specifically here, I got this on the screen. Um, one of the primary ways we can measure our kindness is not how we treat those who are kind to us, but how we treat those who have nothing to offer us and who maybe are unkind to us. And so could you flip that next slide up? I don't know if I, I think I put it up there. Uh, these are the categories of kindness that I think pr- kind of provide a, a crucible for us to learn kindness. God says we should be kind to the poor because in being kind to the poor, we're being kind to God. He says we should be kind to the refugee because as we see the refugee or the immigrant, we see God. Isaiah 58 talks about that. We should be kind to the widow. Beautiful story. If you want to read the book of Ruth, you can read it in about 20 minutes this week about an act of kindness shown to a foreigner and a widow by Boaz. We would be kind to the orphan. Again, a beautiful story there about David and Jonathan's son who was disabled and how David says, how can I show the kindness of God to this person, to this child, the descendant of my best friend, as I come into power in the kingdom? And then lastly, how can we be kind to our opponents, those who disagree with us, those who maybe even hate us, those who are working against us? Let me just throw this passage up, and I'm not going to read it, but just I want to kind of close with this, that, uh, this passage here in Luke chapter 6. Jesus says, love your enemies. Do what is good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do what's good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that, but love your enemies. Do what is good. Lend, expecting nothing in return. Then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is gracious, speaking of God, he is gracious to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, be kind, just as your Father in heaven is kind. In a moment with so much polarization, in a moment with so much fragmenting, in a moment of so much harshness, what would it look like for us to be a community that does kindness, that does goodness, that shows mercy towards those who disagree with us? Maybe the reason that people disagree with us is not just our position on things, but our posture, our tone, the way we say things. So I want to encourage you to do a kindness audit this week. Look at your life. Look at your speech. Look at your relationships. Look at those who you can't stand to be around, who you might call even enemies. Is your tone and your posture and your presence one characterized by kindness and love and mercy? Even as you stand in that firm center and say, this is who I am. This is what I believe. But as I get into close proximity, I open up my home, I open up my life and the workplace. As I get into Zoom chat rooms, is my presence marked with kindness? Is my online social media posting marked with kindness and love and mercy? Is the aroma of kindness surrounding my presence? And let me just give you two questions that I think you can ask about any interaction that you have this week as you go back out into your normal everyday life. What would I do for people if I were Christ? We stand in the place of God and people see God through us. So we are little Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian, a little Christ. If, if I were Jesus, what does this person need right now for me and how can I embody the kindness that I've been shown? Secondly, 
what would I do for people if they were Christ? Would I talk to them that way? Would I speak about them that way? Would I use my physical presence in that way? If this were Jesus himself, because that's what the Bible says, as we treat others, so we treat God himself. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you that your kindness leads us to repentance. God, it is your consistent kindness over and over and over again, even as we've been harsh to you, even as we have not trusted you, even as we have been impatient with you and impatient with one another, God, you continue to be kind. And you make that the pattern and the power for how we are to be kind to one another as a community. So God, I pray that we would become, as Soma Church, the kind ones. As we move out into the world, as we move out into our missional communities, as we move out into our discipleship groups, as we move out into our workplaces, as we move out into our families of origin, God, would we carry your kindness? Would we be contagious carriers of kindness in a world of harshness? And may you use this kindness to create the space and the time for the poor, for the marginalized, for the vulnerable, for the orphan, for the widow, for the foreigner, for the refugee, for the immigrant for even our enemies and those who oppose us to come to know you as a kind God and Savior. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.